So if we were living in certain parts of Iraq or Syria, we would be crying out to God to save us uh, from IS or maybe from President Assad's forces. And the word salvation would have a very specific connotation to do with the immediate political situation. The threat from violent extremists bent on our destruction, that is what we would want saving from. And if you mentioned the word salvation to a first century Jew, uh, they would immediately think of salvation from their enemies, from the succession of foreign invaders that had threatened their safety and their way of life, and particularly uh, succession for uh, salvation from the Romans who were occupying Palestine at that time. Anyone who was being oppressed would quite naturally think of salvation in terms of being delivered from the hand of those who were oppressing them. Zechariah's song of praise, the uh, Benedictus as it's sometimes called, certainly recalls God's promises to save Israel from her enemies. And the Jews are waiting for a Messiah, what Zechariah calls a horn of salvation, who would do just that. Someone who would deliver the people from their enemies and restore Israel to its former glory. Many would have envisaged a king in the line of David who would have booted the Romans out by force, just got rid of them. In the same way that many in Iraq and Syria are hoping that the Americans will come to their rescue by wiping Islamic State off the map. Obviously, I realize that's a massive oversimplification of the situation out there, uh, but hopefully uh, it makes the point. But for the people of Israel, it might have seemed like God had forgotten about them. For 400 years, there'd been no prophets. We looked at that last week. Uh, it, It seemed that God remained resolutely silent. The people were still waiting for their Messiah. I compare it to waiting for a three-year-old boy to put on his socks. This is something I have quite a lot of experience of. He's told you he's going to do it. You believe that he's going to do it. But the longer he goes without doing it, the more you begin to wonder whether it's ever really going to happen. And that may be how the Jews were feeling in the first century. Uh, But that silence is about to be broken by the most significant and awe-inspiring sequence of events in all of human history. What we see throughout this first chapter of Luke is that God is very definitely on the move. He's doing something new. And Luke describes four key events and the Holy Spirit is at the centre of all four of them. So uh, we're going to look briefly at those four events. I want you to listen out for the Holy Spirit's involvement. So firstly, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. He was a priest, uh, appeared to him as he was serving in the temple, announcing that his wife Elizabeth would give birth to a son and that his son would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Not surprisingly, Zechariah had his doubts. He said, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well on in years. He's basically saying, yeah, right, like that's going to happen. And because of his unbelief, God doesn't permit him to speak for the entire term of the pregnancy. It's only when his son is named eight days after his birth, according to the Jewish custom, that he's then able to speak again. And Zechariah's silence during Elizabeth's pregnancy actually mirrors the 400 years of silence where God sent no prophets to Israel. The second key event 
that Luke talks about is the the birth of Jesus is foretold. Uh, We looked at this last week, and again, it's the angel Gabriel who delivers the news. Understandably, Mary's got a few reservations. She says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel Gabriel replies, the Holy Spirit, there he is again, the Holy Spirit, will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The third event is that Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she cries out excitedly as soon as she hears Mary's greeting because the baby in her womb leapt for joy. And then shortly after John the Baptist's birth, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he gets his voice back. He's able to speak again and he gives voice to this song of praise or prophecy that we're looking at today. You know, if things keep happening and the same person is on the scene every time, it doesn't take long before you put two and two together, before you realize uh, who is responsible for those things that are happening. When I was in basic training for the Marines, we used to receive first aid lectures off a medic that we nicknamed Dr. Death uh, because he would show us these uh, gruesome PowerPoints of all these uh, horrific injuries and accidents. It was quite macabre. And uh, he claimed that he was on the scene of all of those accidents. Supposedly, they were his photos. And we concluded that the only way that one person could possibly be on the scene of so many accidents uh, was if he was deliberately going around causing them. Uh, so we were very suspicious of Dr. Death. And in the Bible, there's a gap of 400 uh, years uh, between the Old and the New Testament. And then all of a sudden, all kinds of amazing things, miraculous things start to happen. And the Holy Spirit is always on the scene. The Holy Spirit is always right there at the center. So it's not difficult for us to see that it is the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, that is responsible for these miraculous things uh, that we're reading about over this period. It's the Holy Spirit that gives Zechariah the words of his prophecy. And the first part of Zechariah's prophecy would have sounded really familiar. He has raised up a mighty saviour for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old that we would be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. Every first century Jew would have been able to say amen to that and they would have envisaged a powerful king leading his army to victory. But the tone changes somewhat in verse 77 when Zechariah announces that his son John is to give knowledge of salvation to his people through the forgiveness of their sins. So this salvation is not a political or a military salvation. This is not about saving Israel from their physical enemies, from the Roman Empire. It's about saving them from sin, the very thing that separates them from God, the very thing that separates us from God if we don't surrender our lives to Jesus. The problem is people don't always see sin as their biggest problem. They often, the most obvious problems in life, are not the most serious. We might think that our biggest problem is ill health, or financial hardship, or relationship difficulties. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not belittling those problems. They are serious problems that occupy our thoughts and concern us and worry us. 
But actually for all of us, the biggest problem is sin. That is the biggest problem in the world. Because it is sin that threatens to cut us off from God forever. You know, if you were the first on the scene of a road traffic accident, uh, there, you, you might instinctively run to the person uh, that was screaming in agony, shouting. And all the while, you might be missing the person that's lying silent, unconscious, and unable to breathe. The person who was screaming out would seem to be the person who is in most need of attention, but actually it would be the person that you've not even seen that's lying unconscious. They are the one that most needs attention. And lots of people go through life dealing with stuff as it comes, dealing with the most obvious situation, the most obvious problem, the thing that's unavoidable, the problem that's right there in your face, right there on top of you. You know, if you get diagnosed with diabetes, of course, you need to do something about that. If you're facing bankruptcy, that situation requires your attention. Uh, If your marriage is on on the rocks, uh, it's natural that that would occupy uh, a lot of your thoughts. You'd be preoccupied with that. Uh, The thing is, people spend their lives dealing with this stuff, and they miss the most pressing need of all, the need to be forgiven the need to be washed clean by Jesus, the need to be brought back into a loving and eternal relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's like when that group of friends lowered that paralytic through the roof of the house to get him closer to Jesus. We take one look at that guy. You'd say, what's his most serious problem? We'd say, well, he's paralyzed. But what did Jesus deal with first? Jesus dealt with his sin. He looked at him And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knew more than anything that that man needed forgiveness, even more than he needed physical healing. And the same is true for us. And this is why Christmas is so exciting, because through Jesus, forgiveness is possible. And out of that forgiveness flows restoration and redemption and wholeness and transformation and healing and fullness of life and eternal life. Once we've received forgiveness, all our other problems can only ever be temporary. That doesn't mean that, any, uh, that certain situations are any less difficult or painful, but it does mean that they're temporary. So Israel were focusing on the most obvious problem, that of uh, Roman subjugation and oppression. And all the while, they're missing the elephant in the room. God promised to save Israel. That promise was fulfilled by Jesus, but not in the way that Israel were expecting. And that's because God's promises had far wider implications than anybody dared to imagine. This wasn't just about God Uh, saving a particular people group at a particular point in history. This is about Jesus saving the world from the scourge of sin and death. It's always better to under-promise and over-deliver, don't you think? Imagine I tell my children that I'm going to pick them up after school and take them to the park. They'd probably be quite excited by that. Uh, But what if, uh, when I turned up, I told them that actually... I was going to take them and all their friends to Disney World. Imagine the excitement then. I would have still fulfilled my promise, but in a much more exciting and satisfying way. God promised to save Israel, 
Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus came to save Israel, but he also came to save the rest of humanity. He came to save you and me. Sometimes words get redefined. A tweet used to be the sound that a bird makes. It's now a 140-character message that you type into a social networking site uh, so you can announce to the world that you've just made a spaghetti bolognese or whatever other vital information that you have to get out there. And the word salvation needed to be redefined for Israel. The real enemies were not foreign invaders, but the realities of sin and death, an enemy that was able to cut them off from God for all eternity. An enemy that but for Jesus would have cut us off from God for all eternity. Thank God for Jesus. Because that enemy has been defeated by Jesus so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be brought back into a right relationship with God. And that is the news that John the Baptist was sent to proclaim, preparing the way for Jesus, calling people to repent and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. As uh, a theologian called Michael Wilcox summarized it, he said, before there can be right relationship between man and man, there must be right relationship between man and God. And the sin that spoils that must be repented of and removed. Zechariah's promise ends with the following words. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah is here introducing the most exciting and important story that's ever been told of how God entered into his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ to save his people, to save us, from sin and death, bringing light and hope into a world full of darkness and despair. This is very good news. We started the service this morning uh, with the theme, who are we waiting for? We are waiting for Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world, the one who makes forgiveness and eternal life possible. And next week, we will hear how God entered into this world as a vulnerable helpless, defenceless baby. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we often hear about the magic of Christmas, but we're not so interested in that. We want to capture the miracle of Christmas. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will just get a, a, more of a glimpse this year of just how astounding, how amazing, how wonderful it is that you came into this world to be alongside us in the person of Jesus. Help us to have a real sense of excitement and a growing sense of anticipation as we uh, move through this Advent season and into Christmas. Father, we pray that our thoughts and our hearts and our minds will be completely focused and centered on you this Christmas. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.